Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. For thou art the potter, and we are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy will, while we are here, yielded and still. Those are the beautiful words of a hymn, and they're words for all of us as well. Let me thank you for joining me tonight as we seek to turn this studio into a sanctuary and worship the living God. As always, my prayer is that you will be blessed by the word and the music. I'm so grateful for the musicians who assist me in this ministry. Now, would you please hear the word of God? It comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at the 28th verse. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. 
But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came over and shattered them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent. And in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, that will be done. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Thank you for this great privilege. Help me to be faithful, and may this faithfulness result in your speaking to someone else. It's in your name. Amen. In over 50 years of ministry, I have not known a single person who was an authentic Christian who felt that he or she could live their life without authentic prayer. And evidently this was also important to the writer of Luke's gospel, this importance of prayer. For Luke's gospel is considered the gospel of women, the gospel of Gentiles, the gospel of praise, the universal gospel, but it's also known as the gospel of prayer. Luke felt that the unclosed door of prayer was one of the most precious doors in all the world. And even more significant is this scripture for today as we think about the transfiguration experience because this writer felt that this experience was a prayer experience, a prayer experience. He says Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And from what Jesus experienced, we learn something about the essence of true prayer. So we're going to take a look at his prayer experience in the hope that we too can learn something about the essence of prayer and it can make a real difference in our lives. First of all, true prayer is a coming awake. It is a coming awake. Things had gotten very crucial for Jesus in his ministry. He had plainly told them that he was the Messiah. The Spirit had given Peter the assurance of this and so he had said Jesus was the Messiah and all seemed to be going well. Everything seemed to be on track. But then Jesus gave them the implications of what his messiahship meant. It had to do with the cross. And of course these disciples became afraid and some doubted. No question about that. They were plunged into the valley of discouragement. These disciples needed some verification and so did Jesus. He needed the confirmation of God for what he was about to do. This is the reason that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was to get the confirmation of God for his own journey and the confirmation of God for the disciples because he knew they were going to experience much, much, much before they arrived at the summit of crucifixion and resurrection. So Jesus took three of his disciples up with him on one of Israel's historic mountaintops. And while they were praying, Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes. Now, we could call this transfiguration experience the moment of recognition. The moment of recognition. The word transfigure literally means to change in form or appearance, to transform. The appearance of the familiar is changed in such a dramatic way that a new meaning is discovered. Have you ever had 
something to do with your loved one and suddenly you saw something brand new in that loved one that you have never seen before. Well, I saw that some time ago in something that I will call Myron and the Emergency Break. Myron, of course, is my wife, but I call it Myron and the Emergency Break. One night we were coming back from a party and I leaned down to release the emergency brake and the hand release came off in my hand. Well, I don't know anything about automobiles, so I just drove the car home with the brake on. The next day I took it to the church and asked the custodians if they knew how to fix it. They didn't know how to do it. So I drove it around another day. Then one night my wife and I were sitting around, we were reading, and all of a sudden she took her book and got up and she said, I'm going to fix the emergency brake. And I said, sure you are. Well, she was gone for just a few minutes, and then she was back and said the emergency brake had been released. Well, it was the next day when I was driving my car onto the expressway when the thought suddenly dawned on me, you know, that gal is really something. She can even fix an emergency brake, an emergency brake. And it was quite an experience for me. Jesus was transfigured before their eyes of these disciples. The true nature of Jesus, the inner nature, suddenly came outward. The fundamental otherness of God rested on Jesus' person. These disciples had suddenly seen Jesus for who he was. In his baptism, you remember Jesus got the confirmation of God when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, in this experience, the confirmation not only came to Jesus, it came to his disciples. This is my beloved son, my chosen, listen to him. Listen to him. Now, next to the prayer experiences of these disciples, our own prayer experiences seem rather dull, don't they? Well, let's don't think that this experience happened to these disciples automatically. There's a key verse in this scripture lesson that lets us know exactly what happened to them. I want you to listen to this 30-second verse. Now, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Do you see, they stayed awake. Now, in our lives and our prayer experiences, sometimes we can miss it all simply because we go to sleep. I want to mention a few things that keep us from having a solid prayer experience. First of all is a faulty theology. Many moderns have a faulty theology, and consequently they do not have a meaningful prayer life. A faulty theology, I mean they think of God as not personal. They think of God as a good principle. They think of God as one who created the world and then went off and left it. There's a story of a little boy who went to his mother and said, I'd like a bicycle. His mother said, we can't afford it, but why don't you go to uh, the Virgin Mary that's on your desk and ask her for one? So the little boy, after he had gotten ready to go to bed that night, went over to his desk where there was a statue of the Virgin Mary and he said, dear Holy Mother, I need a bicycle. All the other kids have one. I need one. And then he thought how silly this was. He took the paper and wadded it up and threw it in the trash. The next night before bed, after he had gotten ready, he went back over to the statue, and he knelt down before that statue, and he wrote another note. He said, Dear uh, Holy Mother, I must have a bicycle. My friends have it. It's so necessary. Then he wadded up the paper and threw it in the trash can. Well, the next night after he had gotten ready to go to bed, he went over to where the statue was. He took the statue off his desk, wrapped it up in a blanket. He very carefully put the statue in his drawer. He put some other things in front of the statue. He slammed the door closed and he said, as he wrote these words, Dear Lord Jesus, if you want to see your mother again. 
Now, I think you would have to call that a faulty theology. Busy schedules. This is another thing that keeps people from having meaningful prayer lives. It's not so much reason that crowds prayer out of our lives. It's just busyness. We don't take the time or the place to set up a place to have prayer, and consequently, we don't have a very meaningful prayer life. There was a fellow years ago who used to be the chair of the Department of Evangelism for the Methodist Church, and that was when it was in Nashville, Tennessee. That particular fellow was a marvelous preacher, so he would go preach, and he was from Birmingham, Alabama, and he would preach, and so one day he preached a mission, and then he was invited to lunch to go into this lady's house. Well, after they had lunch, it was delicious. She said, I want to show you something very special to me. She showed him around the house, and then she took him to a room that had been reworked and had been turned into a prayer room. She said, I just want you to know this was my mother's prayer room. So this minister said how pleased he was to see it, and then as they were walking back toward the dining room, he turned to the lady and he said, you showed me your mother's prayer room. Now, where is your prayer room? We're told that she had no answer whatsoever. And then a third thing that keeps people from a meaningful prayer life is mounting distractions, mounting distractions. So many people have distractions. What they're trying to do is have a meaningful prayer life without a regular place and a regular time. And consequently, it becomes impossible for them to have a meaningful prayer life. When the disciples were fully awake, they saw his glory, but they were fully awake. True prayer is a coming awake. And then secondly, true prayer is a will assignment. Now I want you to notice, I didn't say it was a will alignment. I said it was a will alignment, a will alignment. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die there. He needed the confirmation of God on his trip. He needed the confirmation of God that he was the Son of God, that he was doing God's will, that he was going to be the suffering servant like God had planned him to be. That was the reason for the transfiguration experience. He needed the confirmation of God, and he wanted the disciples to have that same confirmation for their lives as well. Another way of stating this was that Jesus was on that mountain seeking a will alignment. He wanted to put his will in that greater will to be sure it was there. The Westminster Confession Catechism says this, prayer is the offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to God's will. This puts the focus where it should be, on God and on God's will. Let me state this clearly. Prayer is not, it is not just getting our words out there wanting to bring God to our wishes. That's not what prayer is. It is not hocus pocus. Prayer is putting ourselves at the disposal of God. I remember when I was the associate pastor at First Methodist Church, Decatur, I remember that we had Ralph Sockman one year as a great preacher to preach, and we had Gerald Kennedy the next year as a great preacher to preach. I was given the responsibility of being their drivers, and it was such a privilege. I was to be at their disposal. And that's what true prayer means. It means being at the disposal of the living God of this universe. Lord Ogilvy, the former chaplain of the United States Senate, he said that one of the turning points of his life was when he was a steward in Scotland, working under the great preacher, Dr. James S. Stewart. He said one day he had waited after class to, so he could talk about preaching and pastoring. And he said, suddenly, Dr. Stewart leaned across the desk and he said, Lord, 
What you need is to die. Now, Lord Ogilvy knew that he didn't mean die to death. He meant die in another way. He meant you don't need more Bible studies. You don't need more theology. You need to die to yourself. You need to put yourself into the will of God. In other words, he was talking about a will alignment. Lord Ogilvy needed to line himself up with God's will. Now, in my own life, back in 1966, I had a particular experience with the will of God. I remember I'd been in the hospital three weeks with infectious hepatitis. I had just finished reading David Wilkerson's book, The Cross and the Switchblade. If you remember that book, David Wilkerson would lift up these prayers, these fleeces, and God would answer them. So one Sunday night, my wife was visiting with me, and I said, Listen, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in his name, he was in the midst of them. Jesus also said that if you have faith and do not doubt as a grain of this mustard seed, if you have faith, you can say to the mountain, get up and remove yourself and go into the sea and it will obey you. I looked at her and I said, we have two. I said, why don't we just pray that I will be out of here on Wednesday. Now, the prayer we prayed was that my test, my Billy Rubin test, would be zero to one. That was normal. Now, the Billy Rubin test is a test they give people who have hepatitis. It takes two days to get the test back. Most people's tests are between zero and one. Mine had gone to 15, and it had come back down to 2.3, and it seemed to be holding. So I remember that was Sunday night. On Monday, the doctor came in and said, Hal, you're looking so much better. And I thought, man, this is working better than I ever thought it would, better than I ever dreamed it would. And I said, well, I'm so glad because, you see, I'm going home on Wednesday. I said, it's already been worked out. The doctor said, I don't think I'd put a limit on it. I said, well, it's been worked out. Well, on Tuesday, they came in, and he said, you're not looking so good. Well, I began to fight and struggle for faith that day. They came in and took another Billy Rubin test. But I began to fight and struggle, and I struggled all that day for pure faith, trying to struggle against doubt. The next day, the doctor came in. This was Wednesday morning. He said, Hal, I'm going to let you go home. I said, that's wonderful. I said, but what is my Billy Rubin count? He said, Hal, I'm going to let you go home today. I said, what is my Billy Rubin count? He said, it's 2.2 and seems to be holding. I said, I can't go home. I've got to stay here. I'm not cured the way that I felt God would cure me. So all that day, I stayed in that bed and I wondered how in the world I was still there. What had happened? I had done what the prayer experience said to do and yet I was still there. It hadn't worked. But then there came into my mind about another young man who was in a room next to me, my same age. He'd been caught in a machine, and he was going to be a vegetable for the rest of his life. And as I thought about him and me, I suddenly realized I had not been praying God's will. I had been praying my will. You see, I was in desperate need of a will alignment. Now, let me tell you something, beloved. I don't think we learn this once and for all. We have to learn this over and over and over again. The real prayer is the Gethsemane prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. But God still expects us to pray honestly what we really desire and what we will and what we would like. But we still have to commit that prayer to God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So true prayer is a will alignment. Not a will alignment, a will alignment, a will alignment. And then thirdly, and here's something else, true prayer is God reflection. True prayer is God reflection. Listen to this passage. While he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Did you get that? 
while he was praying, his appearance changed. The fundamental otherness of God came upon him, and he looked differently. Real prayer is always life-creating and life-changing. To pray is to change. Listen to what Douglas Steele said about prayer. If prayer is real, my surface self, my ego, my persona must decrease, and he must increase in me. I do not dare to stay the way I am. Now, if we're not willing to change, we're not going to stay with prayer very long. You know why? Because the more we pray, the closer we come to the heart of God, the more we begin to see our need and our sin, and the more we want to repent, and the more we want to start anew. But if we stop praying, none of that will happen to us. On the flyleaf of a book, a minister wrote these words. He said, It is the daily communion that where God etches God's likeness upon our lives. But I like the way this woman put it, this lay woman, this humble lay woman. She said, God runs a beauty shop. God remembers our faulty personalities with their blemishes, and God fashions us into something wonderful, something like God in concern, and something like God in care, and something like God in commitment. Now, let me bring this to a conclusion. A theological professor had a student who was married to a dairy farmer. And every morning, the student and the dairy farmer, her husband, would get up at 4.30 to go milk the cows. Well, one day, the student went to a prayer seminar. And in the seminar, she discovered how important it was to have consistent daily morning prayer. So she decided she needed to get up at 4 o'clock and pray for 30 minutes before they went and milked the cows. Well, after she had done this for a while, she simply wrote this down. She said, I've learned that the time on my knees becomes the preparation for prayer, and then the rest of the day becomes the prayer. The time on my knees becomes the preparation of prayer, and the rest of the day becomes the prayer. So I want to say this to you again, as loudly and as clearly as I can. I have not known a single individual in 50 years of ministry who is a dynamic, authentic Christian who do not feel the absolute necessity of daily prayer. Let us pray. Lord, how grateful we are for the opportunity of being together. We are grateful for your blessings upon our lives, and we are grateful that you want to use us to be a blessing to others. Thank you for those who are listening and watching. Bless them and make them a blessing. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, and I trust that you'll share this with a friend, and they'll join us for these Thursday nights. God bless, and good night. the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean in pity angels beheld him and came from the world of light Comfort him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. How marvelous 
how wonderful and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall Savior's love.